Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi, it's Dave here, and you're about to listen to a presentation I did recently at the Marx 200 conference, which was held at Common House, and it's a presentation on Marx and his various theories of crisis. I hope you enjoy it. If you've got any questions, stuff you really disagree with, things you reckon I get wrong, hit me up at Twitter, at With Sober Senses. And if you're enjoying the Living the Dream podcast, and I hope you are, then you might be interested in a new radical media project coming out of Brisbane called Flood Media. You can find it online at floodmedia.org. They've also got a podcast, The Floodcast, and I'd really recommend episode one entitled The Fair Work Act Rules Everything Around Me. Check it out. It's a really exciting new project. Anyway, let's crack on with Marx and his theories of crisis. All right. Thank you very much. Um... Thanks, friends and comrades. I hope you find this useful. Um, I'm just going to have to arrange myself in a way that I can read my computer. So, crisis theory is a really important contribution of Marx's work. And I feel that if you spend any time around any kind of anti-capitalist circle that has an engagement with Marx, you're presented with some version of crisis theory. Um, Normally, it's quite truncated and quite summarised. So in preparation for today's presentation, I went, hey, I want to talk about crises and crisis theory in Marx. I then went off and did a whole bunch of reading. So I tried to locate what I thought would be the four locations where Marx in his mature development, when he's doing his critique of political economy, and feel free to jump in at any time. And I've got too many notes here, so I'm going to try to truncate it, but you could think about Marx's life in a way that he's involved in the revolutionary wave of 1848 and is taken by surprise when the fact that that doesn't lead to global communism. And one of the problems he has to understand is why that didn't happen. And it compels him towards his main mature work, which is critique of political economy. And that's a very interesting term, critique of political economy, because what it basically means is he reads the political economy of the day to both say what is wrong about it, but also what it tells you about how capitalism is actually functioning. So a lot of the concepts that Marx is using are not ones that he invents. So I don't really like... I like Rhodes' presentation previously, but I don't like the term labour theory of value, for example, for Marx's work, because he never uses the term labour theory of value. And if you want to find a labour theory of value, you can find it in Adam Smith, like really in Adam Smith. But my point is that his his critique is working on ideas that are out there to try to explain, try to say that they are trying to talk about reality but they are missing something. And he never finishes it, right? So people often say Marx writes three volumes of Capital. Marx does not write three volumes of Capital. He writes one volume of Capital and then he writes a whole bunch of manuscripts that he puts in a chest and he gives to his daughter and he says, when I die, give this to Fred Engels and he'll know what to do. And then Engels then spent the last 11, 12 years of his life turning them into books, right? 
And not only that, there's good evidence now that the reason he didn't finish them was because he was engaged in a constant rethinking of the basic premises that were involved. So, and the other thing that's important too is that most of the time, the work that I'll be talking about today where Marx is looking at crisis predates volume one. So he didn't write volume one, volume two, volume three. He wrote a whole bunch of manuscripts, dumped them, then wrote, wrote the manuscripts that became two and three, then wrote volume one and wrote it quite badly, then wrote it again and again and was engaged in constant revision of it. So what I wanted to do today was to go back and find in his major texts where he's talking about crisis and read them chronologically, right, to see how his ideas are unfolding. So I have a whole bunch of notes, right, but I'll try to truncate that into a more usable form. But why have a crisis theory? Um, Ten years ago, you know, the economic orthodoxy was that crisis was over. The crisis had been managed. We were now in the great moderation. We're a combination of kind of capitalist, uh, the well-functioning of the capitalist system, good central bank policy and increased information meant crisis had been escaped. We then had, you know, the 2000, 2007, 2008 financial crisis. What was that? So we have a whole bunch of people in America who can't make their home loan payments. This suddenly leads to a global shock of the financial system. Because what we find is that those debts have been securitized, so they've been bundled into commodities, and they've been traded around the entire globe, borrowed on against and borrowed, you know, this complicated architecture. And when that exploded, it revealed just how unprofitable the system actually was. So one of the great examples at the time was General Motors was not making money from selling cars. It was its engagement in financial markets that were keeping it afloat. So suddenly crisis is back in the news. But if you looked at the budget uh, last week, we were told the economy is going great. Global economy is doing well. Australian economy is doing well. Crisis is in the past. 3.5% wage, wage increase next year, in the next three years. Um, if you read the IMF spring papers, and I think like if, you, if people are like, how do I make sense of the world? The IMF meets twice a year and it produces these huge get fucked documents. But if you read like the two-page executive summary, that's probably enough. And it's actually a really useful task to see how a body that's concerned about how the global economy functions thinks what's going on. And they were like, oh, growth is good, but we're very worried because there's this huge expansion of debt. Because what happened at the last financial crisis, the financial system went into shock, then the states bailed out the financial system, they engaged in a huge amount of inventing money to purchase financial assets, they've set interest rates incredibly low, negative interest rates in some places, so people borrow lots and lots of money. And um, this has kind of deferred the crisis and led to a huge, huge pocket of debt. So we need a crisis theory. Why do we need a crisis theory? I think there is a need to explain what is going on. But also more importantly, I think we need to demystify false solutions. And I think really Marx's crisis theory was an attempt to look at the arguments that were going on in his age and saying why they aren't appropriate. Most explanations of crisis end with, and this is what the state should do, right? So... Um, who wrote debt in the age of crisis or growth in the age of growth in the age of debt? Rogoff and Reinhardt. and Reinhardt, right? So they wrote a paper in like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, where they said crisis is caused by too much debt. So what we need is we need the government to cut debt. If you have modern monetary theorists around at the moment, they'll say crisis is caused by an inadequate amount of debt. 
The state should create more debt, create more money, should invest. It's what the state should do. Marx's crisis theory is all about why the state can't solve it, you know, which I think kind of makes it unique in some ways. And I think at that level, it's why the theory is important, because people will be looking for solutions, people want to act, and the idea of having some kind of understandable way to explain what is happening is really important, because you know, we live in capitalism. It is the gloop that makes up our lives. Everything that I do pretty much to exist relies on the functioning of the capitalist system. So when it goes into crisis, our lives go into crisis in a really profound way. Um, and that's worth having an explanation because we need to act. If you've paid attention to the news at the moment, Argentina has just approached the IMF to get a bailout and there's more nerves about, you know, is this going to signal a kind of crisis in emerging markets and what will be this global effect? So I think those of us that want to have an intervention, it's really important. Uh, I'll get into the meat in a moment. But some of us, I met some comrades here during when the Occupy wave came to Brisbane. Very small, right? During that Occupy wave, films were put on every night, right? And the majority of the films were terrifying right-wing conspiracy theory about, you know, Jews or lizard men controlling <laughs> banks and banks creating financial crisis. But what was stunning is that all these films existed. That all these people had been thinking about an explanation. You know, and there wasn't a radical... Really, there was a couple of films came out later, but we weren't really prepared. Except we could go, oh, volume three, right? But volume three of Capital is not going to help in that moment. We have to get ready to understand crisis and popularise that. Because otherwise these other versions are going to be out there. You could film the pages. You could feel the page, but it would be, be tough going. <laughs> So mainstream economic theory of crisis generally says that market economies tend towards harmony or equilibrium, and then something happens that disturbs it. So the monetarists, people like Milton Friedman, say Keynesians ruined money, and that's when we have crisis. The real business cycle people say, oh, look, you just have these technological changes. These technological changes upset things, but if you have a well-functioning monetary economy, then things go back to equilibrium. Right now, I think the left in Australia is arguing a kind of soft Keynesian version as well. The problem is that due to the power of, of big business, wages have been held down and this is distorted demand. If only we could get big business out of the way, wages will rise properly and will save the economy, meaning capitalism. It's another variant of mainstream economic theory. Marx's crisis theory is radically, is radically different. Again, to emphasise, it's unfinished, and it's unfinished in a really important way. In all Marx's popular work on crisis, he emphasises the important role of finance. But in his actual written work, serious written work on finance, he never finishes that section. The chapters in Capital Volume 3 on finance are at best research notes, right? So it puts us in a difficult picture where he knew finance was crucial, and he never finished it. So for us, living in a financialized capitalism, there's a lot of work we have to do, but maybe Marx's work is useful. Now, at his base theory, Marx tries to develop a theory of overproduction, which later becomes a theory of overaccumulation. Now, Humphrey McQueen is very interested in dating when the first proper crisis developed. I can't tell you when the first proper crisis developed, but the idea of overproduction was something that already existed in bourgeois liberal 
political economy before Marx, in particular a guy called Sismondi. And it's because capitalism creates a kind of crisis that really humanity has not experienced before. Societies have often gone into crisis, and they've gone into crisis because there is not enough things, right? There's a drought, or you fight a war, and because you fight your war, you involve too, many, too much of a surplus in arming soldiers, and then your peasants starve to death, particularly when a drought happens. These are the kinds of crises. But what the early critics like Sismondi were noticing is that technological development and productivity and crisis seemed to go together that capitalism was doing something really unique, that we weren't having a crisis because there was an absence of goods. We were having a crisis because there were too, too much wealth. Isn't that amazing? Like, this is a new problem that humanity was facing. And for Sismondi, the idea was to, to go back. Capitalism was going in a terrible direction and we had to defend craft and guild production, which he saw still existing in Switzerland, and he went to England and went, what the fuck is this? This is pauperism. We need to go back to guilds and trades. So Marx's entire work is riffing on this idea. How do we understand that increased productivity creates a tendency towards crisis? Linked to how is this related to the overcoming of capitalism? When you read the Communist Manifesto, so this is very early on in his life, before he's done the serious work in the critique of political economy. He has this interesting paragraph about crisis and talks about how capitalism goes into crisis. And then right after that paragraph, he talks about the creation of the working class. So he ties these things together. but not So he says crisis, the caused by productivity, the weapons which the bourgeoisie felled feudalism to the ground and now turned against the bourgeoisie itself. Not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapons that bring death to itself, but also called into existence the men who are to wield these weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians. So at that stage of his work, crisis is linked to the overcoming of capitalism. And certainly if people are getting into reading Marx, people bang on a lot about what is the preface to the contribution to the critique of political economy, a slim book he wrote before Capital. Because in those few pages in that preface is the only place you ever really get a summation of his philosophy. So you go, ah, here it is, right? But of course, with all summations, you lose a lot of the detail. But he has this line in it. At a certain stage, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production, or merely expressing the same thing in legal terms, with the property relations within the framework of which they've operated hitherto. From forms, of from forms of development of the productive forces, these relations turn into fetters. This begins an era of social revolution. The change in the economic foundation leads sooner or later to transformation to the whole immense superstructure. So here you can see a summation of Marx's method, which seems to be suggesting again, crisis is evidence that society is already pregnant with the productive and technological capacities to go beyond that society. So there's evidence about that kind of thinking in his work. His journalism is also very interesting because he engages in journalism around crisis where he says things like um, he engages with debates with free traders and makes a comment that doesn't matter if you have free trade or protectionism, either way you're going to have crisis. And he does a lot of work about this French state bank deeply involved with the 
Napoleon Bonaparte the Third Empire. I, I don't speak French, so the name in a bad accent is Credit Mobilier. And he, what he wants to talk about is this huge financial institution that is basically strip mining the country through speculation. So he knows in his practical work that finance is deeply involved in how crisis manifests itself. But in his serious theoretical work, he wants to create an understanding of crisis that shows at its base level, crisis is inherent to capital. So even though he knows in reality it plays out in finance and speculation, he wants to strip down and say, no, no, no. And it's most base level we can understand crisis. And if you read the Grundrisse, it's a really amazing book because it starts with an argument. There's an argument going on in France between, I think, Daramon and Proudhon's fans. And they're trying to argue about why crisis exists. And both of them say the problem is money. Something is going wrong at the level of money that is, is causing crisis. And only if we fix money, then we can keep commodity production. And it won't be capitalist commodity production. And everything will be fine. We, we encounter this idea today, right? Like, how many ideas for alternative economics do you encounter that are like, oh, we just fix it at the level of money. Um, and Marx wanted to show why money expressed a crisis that was more structurally deeper within that system. He has a great line because apparently um, um, Proudhon wants to... Oh, one of them wanted to say everything should be able to be money, right? So the problem is that banks have a monopoly on money. Everything should be able to be money. Marx has this line, they want to abolish the Pope by making everyone Pope, right? So... Um, <laughs> And that's how he proceeds in the Grundrisse. And so he gives us two theories in the Grundrisse. One is a theory of overproduction, and the other is that contradictions happens between value as a form of measure in the development. And he says that he begins to waver at this point, because he says that both crisis is a thunderstorm which increasingly threatens the foundation of the society and the mode of production itself. But he also begins to say... Crisis is how capitalism operates itself. And I'll truncate his... The, the theory of overproduction in the Grundrisse is not his best presentation of it. So I'll try to do a truncated version of it. So basically what he wants to say is why is it that product, development of productivity creates crisis? And he goes back to his theory of exploitation. And he says, so exploitation is essentially surplus labour. You know, how much can you get between what you pay people and what you squeeze out of them? So he's constantly saying capitalism leads towards crisis because it's dependent on producing surplus labour. And it does that by reducing necessary labour, by increasing productivity more and more and more. He says at some point, this is going to run into a contradiction. And he says there are four problems that it runs into. He says, first of all, to get surplus labour, you have to employ necessary labour. And that means wages are a hard limit. You can't employ people for nothing. So that's one contradiction. So he also says that um, you only invest in productivity to the limit that you can get surplus labour. So here, product, product you know, creative capabilities could be invested endlessly but people are only willing to do it as much as you can squeeze things out of people. But to get this surplus labour, you've got to have commodities that can be transformed into money. You've got to have things that can be sold. But then on the other hand, you only produce things that are going to be sold if you can sell them. 
So use value is limited by exchange value. So he says you've got these four problems there, and they're going to express themselves in overproduction. And the next point he says, he gets this really interesting metaphor that he'll use again and again. He says capitalism becomes its own barrier. These four limits means capitalism runs into a limit in itself. And then we'll say what drives capitalism further is an attempt to get above this barrier, but when doing so, it'll simply produce this barrier again. He doesn't do a great deal at this point to try to work this out more thoroughly. He does create a, a, a thing about demand, where he says, look, to ha sell these commodities, you need to have demand in society, but everyone only buys commodities to the level of their, their employed, Companies are in competition with each other. They try to force work wages down as possible. So he says there'll never be enough demand in capitalist society. And then says overproduction crisis is when capitalists can't sell sufficient amount of commodities to realise their investments at a sufficient level of profit. Right? This leads then to a destruction in capital. What is invested is then lost. But this general drop in prices will mean that companies that survive this crisis can reinvest again on a more intensified and centralised basis. So here he's presenting crisis as how capitalism operates. Those who survive the crisis will come out of it bigger, more centralised. But this then means they're setting them up for the next crisis. Also in Gundrissa, he develops these ideas between pages 690 and 712 in the Penguin version, the fragment of machines where he says value begins to fail as a, as a form of measure. So I talked about this in the first um, plenary, but it basically goes like this. He says capitalism only really becomes capitalism when it changes the mode of, it changes how work looks. And that's what he called real subsumption. It takes over and changes work. And it invests the technological and scientific capacities of society into what we encounter at work. General knowledge on a whole starts becoming what is productive. However, he says, in a capitalist society, we measure things by labour time. And we can have a big debate about what that actually means. I think his theory of value isn't developed at this point. He says, what happens when what is productive is not labour, but is the general social knowledge? Well, labour time is no longer an effective measure of this... And it gets really kind of... marks his most wonderfully febrile at this point, right? Because he's saying this development of productivity creates the potential from a well-rounded individual, it creates the potential of free time and wealth, but we confront it like a monstrosity, but capital can no longer measure, capital runs into itself as a crisis. But he doesn't explain how that happens. However, I think if you're one of those people that wants to go, can Marx help us theorise information technology, robotics, or something like that, this would be the section you'd look at. And at the Italian post-workerists, Negri, Marazzi, Lazzarato, they're really engaged in this section of the Grundrisse, and they use it to talk about capital today. In the Theory of Surplus Value, Volume 2, so this is Volume 4 of Capital, right? It was called Theories of Surplus Value in Volume 2. Um, and I, will try, I, didn't, I don't know how long I've gone for, I'll try to get a bit faster. He goes, well, it's not, let's not call it overproduction every, anymore. Let's turn it to overaccumulation. Because really we're not seeing just an overproduction of things, we're seeing an overproduction, an overabundance at that stage of capital. 
And at this stage, he's arguing against people like uh, Say and Ricardo who want to say that a general situation of overproduction is impossible. And they say a general situation of overproduction is impossible because people only make goods to sell. So if I couldn't sell something, I would stop making it and I'd invest in something else. So you'd only have in you know you'd only have some unbalance in one sector of the economy. But they imagine production to be like barter. I'm growing chickens and I want to trade them to Dom. If Dom suddenly doesn't want my chickens anymore and Ali doesn't want my chickens, then I'm going to grow cows, you know? Because we. But Mark's like, no, no, no. People are not producing just for goods. They're producing to accumulate capital. And crucially, they're producing things to sell. And he says, if you drill down to it, in money itself, you find crisis. He says you find it in two ways. One, because money implies that you can buy something without selling it, right? This can fall apart. I can be a, in, I can open a shop and I take my money and I buy a whole bunch of pogs, but pogs are no longer the desirable thing, so I don't sell my pogs. So there's already crisis in money. It's not a barter economy. But secondly, he says, because there is a chain of debts and interrelationships between businesses, that what can become a crisis for me in my pog store becomes a crisis for the landlord that I'm renting the place from, becomes a crisis for all the related um, productive apparatuses, right? That, that it's tied in this way. So there's two faces to the crisis. Oh, come on, computer, keep on operating. So crisis is implicit in the metamorphosis of the commodity itself. But he says, okay, it's implicit in it, but why does it happen? Come on, computer. Um, no, it's just slow. And it's a and it's a similar theory in um, the of overabundance again that people have produced too many commodities to go to market. They can't be sold and they can't realize the the production. Um, they can no longer increase the working day to a certain level, and they can't increase productivity beyond a certain level. And if you have a glut of one commodity this can then become a glut for everyone. So at that stage, he really wants to disprove Ricardo. It's in volume three where we get the crisis theory, I guess, probably most developed. And for this, I didn't use volume three. They've recently published the manuscript that volume three was based on. Um, now, I'm not doing this just because I wanted to win a pedantry <laughs> award, but there is an argument that there is important... Um, translation differences that Engels made that have an impact. And also that Engels made Volume 3 look far more like a complete work rather than a series of notes. But the important translation difference is apparently there's a word that Marx uses that could be translated as slap and Engels translated into catastrophe, right? So there's a point where Marx is saying crisis is a slap to capital. And Engels go transcend, and this led to a theory of like the final catastrophe of capitalism, so to speak. All right. Um, let me, oh yes. Sir. I just point out that uh, Gorter also played a role in. Uh, yeah, and the, you, you've actually raised what is one of the most interesting points. His daughter was very involved, and apparently one of the insights she had to this is as Marx worked on capital, as she was a child he told her a fairy tale version of capital called Hans Rockel and the Devil, right? 
and made this story up. And it was the insights she'd gained from Hans Rockel and the devil. Which are, and he never wrote it, right? Isn't this the book you want Marx to write? <laughs> Interestingly enough, a group of communist fairy tale tell, tellers in Germany in the four, in like 1940s wrote Hans Rockel and the Devil. And you can find on YouTube the trailer for the film that it was made out of it, and it looks amazing, right? <laughs> but it's, so, yeah, his daughter very, very involved and had this kind of insight. When was that film made? Was it in West Germany? I don't know. You'd have to. You'd have to check. It, it's a lot of people dressed as devils in tights, jumping around with smoke machines. It's really amazing. So, what? Okay. Well, I'll try to do the last bit, the most important bit, very quickly. Okay. So it's in volume three where we get the idea of a tendency for the general rate of profit to decline. Um, it's really important that you look at those words, tendency. Right. So Marx is talking about there is some, there is a drive in capitalism that heads it in one direction. Reality will always get in the way and distort that tendency. So it's important to recap. Some people would have been in Rhodes and Annie's session about what an average rate of profit is. So it's basically the idea that in a capitalist society, businesses are interrelated with each other and capital flows from sector to sector. And because of that, it leads to an equalisation of the profit rate, that what gets exploited at this point doesn't get realised at that point, but spread through the system. And again, real life often gets in the way. I have a half-bullshit theory that during things like mining booms, you don't get an average rate of profit. There's a distortion to the average rate of profit. And you can read my blog for this in more detail. Um, so it's, it's like a general tendency going on. Interestingly, when Marx is writing this in this state, this part of Volume 3 of Capital, he hasn't included yet merchant capital, so shops or finance. He's going to include them later. He's just talking about businesses. So he says you have this general tendency of an average rate of profit to accumulate. And he also emphasises that commodities in reality don't sell at their values. Prices fluctuate and they fluctuate around their prices of production. So how much it costs you, roughly with the, with added to um, the average rate of profit, but you might sell more at less and other people sell higher, so you get this, this movement. So he says, generally in capitalist society, so let's go back to it, there's an increase in productivity. And by this stage, he's got a language to talk about this, and it's what he calls the organic composition of capital. By the organic composition of capital, he means how much money is spent on machines and how much money is spent on labour, right? So, to capitalist firms in competition with each other will constantly try to push themselves to be more productive. And you can say a general way they do this is to spend more money on technology. And when an individual firm does this, it can produce a commodity cheaper than the average price. And so when it goes to market, it can either sell it at the average price and make a little bit more money, or it can sell it even below the average price and make a little bit more money. But the nature of capitalism means that all firms are compelled to then take up that level of technology. So he says this means there is a general tendency in capitalism to spend more capital on machinery in relation to labour. If you jump, if you pull out your phone and you go to the Reserve Bank of Australia charts pack, you can find a chart that describes investment on machinery versus labour. And this is what it demonstrates, right? Really, really steeply. He says, hang on though, but if at some level, ultimately, labour is the source of surplus value which becomes all profit, you have a tendency for a declining rate of profit. This does not manifest itself as a drop in profit immediately. 
what it might actually mean is that there is an increase in the mass and the size of profit. We are finding bigger firms, more productive, producing more commodities more cheaply, that are, that are, and, and are realising on their books a bigger mass of capital and a bigger mass in profit at the same time you have this general tendency of the ratio to decline. And it can be quite interesting, like, because it's only a tendency, there's lots of countervailing tendencies, right? So, like, if commodities are becoming cheaper, then inputs are becoming cheaper for big companies too as well. So this can push up their rate of profit. It's not a hard law. The other point I want to make as well is often when you read people that talking about the average rate of profit, they calculate something in their head and they go, that's the average rate of profit. Now I'm going to chart what direction it's going. But Marx is not talking about a fixed number. He, he's talking about flows of capital across society. So it's more like capital is moving from industry to industry, but there is a general drive for it to become more productive, combined with cheaper commodities, a greater mass of commodities, and a greater mass of profits. You've got other countervailing tendencies. If you increase the exploitation of labour, you're going to push up the rate of profit. You could sometimes even reduce wages below their value. If you have cheaper inputs, your rate of profit goes up, or if you have a rise in a kind of relative surplus population, and foreign trade too. Because particularly at this time, what we've got to remember, in the 19th century, it is England exporting productive goods to India and to China that are destroying those economies, right? Sometimes forcefully, you know, so the English go in and destroy the Indian cotton, uh, destroy the Indian uh, textiles trade and say, you can only buy textiles from us. When they take over the Chinese ports and the opium wars and they go, we're going to impose tariffs where anything you want to export, no one's going to buy. So there's, you know, there's some guns involved here. So what does this create? And he wants to talk about, you know, you've got competition, you've got depreciation of older capitals, you've got more and more centralisation going on. He says at some point you hit overproduction, overaccumulation of capital. He says absolute overaccumulation of capital would be when the amount of more profit you could realise is zero, right? There's just nowhere to go. He says, but that's just in theory. He says... In reality, what happens, you hit a relative rate. Never says what that relative rate is. But there's some point where, in relation to the mass of capital that is invested and the rate of profit you're getting as a return, it is no longer viable. At this point, he says, you have increased financial speculation as well because capital is looking for places to go. For him, this is the generation of crisis. So what happens... And what happens in crisis? You suddenly have businesses that have to sell cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, or businesses that stop trading, businesses that close. You have the devaluation of capital. Unemployment happens, so demand drops. But this, for, for Marx, is just cyclical. At some point when there's been a devaluation of capital, a destruction of capital, a drop in the value of wages, those that survive, again will purchase what has got what is left over, will invest on a greater level, and the system restarts itself. So by this stage in Marx's work, you have a vision of crisis that isn't the end of capitalism. But crisis is the normality of how capitalism works. It has a tendency towards overproduction. It has a crisis. It resets itself. It goes on that tendency on an ever more intensified frame. 
He has a small fragment on finance in his big 250 pages on finance, volume three, where he says, look, what, what does finance do? And he says, finance exacerbates crisis because it pushes capital to its limit. Because people can borrow more and more and more, you can stave off over-accumulation until some point where it's more destructive. Interesting thing as well, at this point, Marx also says finance is the abolition of private property on the basis of private property because the individual manager is no longer in charge. You get rather a horde of banks and shareholders that begin to hold capital. So that's normally seen as Marx's most developed crisis theory. But if you go back to volume one, and this is what I'll finish on, you get another insight to crisis as well. Because it's why does technology grow? In volume one, Marx gives us two different reasons why capital invests more in technology. And the first is what I mentioned before, relative surplus value. Firms in competition with each other want to become more productive. But on his chapter on the working day, he says struggle. It is capital's need to dominate labour that causes it to invest more and more in technology. And he has one line where it's something along the lines of, you could write a history of every technological invention from 1830 as developing weapons against strikes. Now, I think this is a really interesting point because this would then say the actual cause in crisis is us. What causes the tendency to change the organic rate of profit? It's resistance against exploitation. And it is the Italian tradition of workerism, operismo, autonomia, that really take and riff off this point. And there's some textual evidence you can understand that. Because the problem with otherwise crisis theory is it's like capitalism trundles along, <laughs> it causes a crisis, and at that moment, quick comrades, to the barricades, right? There's no kind of active element. But if you read in this insight about technology and the development of technology as a force of exploitation, you then have a theory of crisis that also takes into account struggle. At the end of um, Volume 1, he talks about the general development of capital accumulation. He says, as you have a couple of different dynamics. As capitalism grows, if its composition stays the same, it needs more labour. But as the, variable, as the part of the, that's spent on variable capital, on wages, declines, you have a relatively less labour that's needed. And this, therefore, creates a surplus population. That's there. So what he's saying is capitalism is, develops, it both needs more workers, but it spews more workers out. It needs that surplus population because for capitalism to grow, it needs to hire more people into it. But on the other hand, that surplus population is a problem because who is going to look after them? This is very interesting right now, isn't it? Because we have, globally, a massive surplus population. You know, these are people who have been drawn in to capital no longer subsistence farmers, but there's no one to hire, to hire them. You can also argue we have, you know, surplus capital as well. Right, this is the very finish with it. I was asked to also talk about how some people developed it. Rosa Luxemburg. And I think, course of the success of this weekend, next year, we should do something on Rosa Luxemburg and the 100th anniversary of her death. Everyone loves Rosa Luxemburg. Very few people read her accumulation of capital but it's, it's worth reading, right? It's, it's an amazing text. And in the accumulation of capital, she actually drills into something in volume two. In volume two of Capital, Marx builds a hypothetical model about how you could understand a capitalist system to exist. You say, here's department one, they make 
capital goods, so machinery, his department too, they make commodity goods, and they're interrelated with each other. And I can hypothesize that capital can grow. And in my next book, I'll tell you about crisis. Rose Luxemburg says, no, there needs to be an outside source of demand. There needs to be a source out there that provides extra demand to build up commodities, provides extra labour and provides cheap inputs. And she says this is colonies. This is imperialism. She creates a theory of capitalism that necessitates an exterior for capitalism to grow. What's the other point of crisis here? You run out of exterior, right? Or do you? Maybe this is why people want to go to the moon. Maybe this is what nuclear weapons programs are about. Maybe this is what financial speculation is about. But for her, she's identified another point of crisis, an outside source of demand that is necessary for capitalism to grow. And also the operismo tradition, right? So this is the workerist tradition. They very much want to emphasise struggle. So they say if you look in the 1960s and the 1970s, yeah, you have a tendency of the rate of profit to decline. Part of that's because people are demanding higher and higher and higher and higher wages. And they're not going to work, right? That we have wildcat strikes, we have demand for a social wage, that this, you've got to see that crisis. And they would also say that the way capitalism responds has to be conditioned by what str the struggles that was going on. So when we talk today about casualization, you know, flexibility, what we often forget in the 60s and 70s, people were revolting about against the boredom and regimentation of a secure job for life. People were demanding flexibility. Capital gave it back to us in a perverted form, right? In the same way that you know, the feminist movement were, were demanding waged reproductive labour, wages for housework. We have it. It's the service industry, right? It's a demand that we produce perverted and thrown back against us. How would I finalise? Firstly, to make this theory of crisis worthwhile, we need a better understanding of finance. And there's people out there that are working on the development of finance from there. I would say what has been very interesting is since the 1970s, we've been in a situation of crisis delayed, right? Each time capital prevents a crisis, it gets bailed out. Central banks produce a huge amount of money, you get another range of financial spectrum. So before 2008, you now you think there was the dot-com boom, Asian financial crisis before that, peso crisis before that. What's Marx's insight would be that the crisis never falls, never gets to do its purging ability. Of course, on the other hand, if you were just to say, let the crisis happen, it's unclear that anyone would survive, right? How much can we say crisis has a tendency towards war? So we're in this interesting stage where crisis hasn't happened so we have continuing lingering over-accumulation with huge amounts of, of stimulation. So Larry Summers, a neoclassical economist, is constantly talking about secular stagnation. And this is what he means. He says, everyone thinks growth is really great at the moment, but it's pretty shit considering the amount of free money that's out there. That they haven't had this ping, this ability to, bur to kind of purge going on. How is this useful for us? I think in this crisis and the next crisis, we can develop this in popular ways to explain to people what is going on. But also as well, to mainly I think, not just to deal with right-wing Rothschilds and all the money wingnuts, but the arguments on the left. Um, friends and comrades that write about the Accord talk about one of the reasons the Accord was so popular was because there wasn't a radical alternative. Capitalism was in crisis and thinkers in the Communist Party of Australia and the Labor Party went, an Accord, we can do this, we can save capitalism, get a social wage. An analysis that said 
something else wasn't well developed enough. I think in our conversations around things like change the rules, whatever you think of that, this doesn't just become a pedantic scholastic exercise. It becomes an immediately useful intellectual tool to include in how we decide what we should do. Um, yeah, just 15 minutes or so. Or... Well, just, uh, start, but, uh, come to mind that a person called Hank Fulton, he was the treasurer of the United States at the time of the uh, end of the Bush years. And if anyone ever gets a chance, they should have a read of it, because basically uh, the policy was uh, the same as throwing spaghetti against the kitchen wall to see what sticks. Mm. They had no idea what to do except to spend money. And that worked out to be the solution to, to the crisis. But uh, it's interesting, if you ever get a chance to read that book, uh, you know, for someone who's in the middle of the system, mm. who's, who's making all the decisions and, and really you can just see it uh, if he doesn't say it in his own words we're making it up as we went along mm. and to a degree uh, I think that's one of the things with uh, the ways that uh, some of these crises are handled is that they're you know, we'll just see what works and can, and we'll throw money at it and, uh, and see how we can go with that mm. um, and that's working quite successfully at the present moment. In the past, there was always, always the barrier of uh, deflation of the currency. But now, because you have a, uh, all your currency basically is on a computer, you, you don't have that deflation in the same way. And, uh, and so this new way of handling the crisis of basically is financial uh, capital rather than industrial capital is, uh, is by throwing more money at the problem. So I do recommend it if anyone ever gets a chance to see it. It's off, Tom. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dave. lot to get my head around. Um, but I guess wanting... Maybe it's not an actual issue, but I know that often it's, I guess, raised around, you know, one, I think you kind of question whether there's a labour theory of value, and I guess also that over-accumulation or under-consumption or whatever being the problem as opposed to the, you know, the falling rate of profit, I guess, mm. you know, because they, I guess, situate crisis differently. Um, and I think, you know, even your comments, I guess, around, um, you know, the political discussion around Angle's editing, like, I guess, one, you know, the Michael Roberts kind of stuff around, and uh, the discussions with David Harvey around, well, the falling rate of profit is actually, that's the key one, you know. Oh, uh, uh, it's not just a question of the cir of circulation over accumulation and, and uh, situating it there because I guess that's a that's like you say it, the everyday part of a capitalist market market economy, but that you know um, tends to balance and that the crisis is actually in production. You know, it's a, it's that whole the organic, organic composition of capital, um, and I guess why why I'm interested to hear your comments is because they do kind of pose different strategies, I guess, right? One, if, it, if it's production, then we still, <coughs> the key issue is still about organising in the workplace. Perhaps, it, you know, um, 
in, I think in many ways, you know, that you can't escape the reality of organising in trade unions and whatnot, and that it's not just a question of kind of the more, you know, the social strike kind of um, strategy, you know, the, the, or, you know, the, the question around um, some of David Harvey's stuff as well, I guess. Is that an actual issue or is it an issue that we're kind of making up, I guess, your, your views on that? But I guess why, you know... If if crisis is that just that everyday part of capitalism as you as you kind of see it, then that then it does also change. I guess that question of what will is if it's everyday, you keep talking about delaying it. You know what does that actually? Yeah. You know what does that actually mean? Can I, can I speak to this now? Like um, I think first of all, I think it's important that our approach is that we're trying to use Marx to explain reality not use reality to say Marx wins. <laughs> Does that make, which I think is often like the approach, it's like, ah, Marx wins, mm-hmm. so what? Um, the debate, at some level the debate between overaccumulation and un- underproduction, is, or um, underconsumption, is immediately a political one, right? So for those that are not familiar with it, the underconsumption one is basically there's not enough aggregate effective demand. People don't have enough money in their pockets to buy things. If that's the case, you can solve crisis by producing more money. If it's overaccumulation, you cannot solve it. So underconsumptionism is far more associated with Keynes. And Keynes, has, Keynes' end point is that capitalism will get so productive that it'll just nicely stop being capitalism, right? So for him, he reverses Marx's problem. His point is that, well, we have prices because we have scarcity. When we get to abundance, total abundance, we won't need prices anymore. Who'll work? Who'll give a shit about money? He's got this amazing essay called Letters to Our Grandchildren, which you should read which is like why we won't work anymore and everything will be fantastic because he thinks productivity will trump social form. Where I think the Marxist argument is the social forms trump the productivity, right? So it's an immediately important debate right now, right? Because this is the debate that Sally McManus, the ALP and the ACTU are making around wages, right? It misunderstands what wages are too. Textually in Marx, you can find evidence for an argument about underconsumption, Right? where he is saying that workers never get enough wages really to buy everything. Um, to track back about like um, the labour theory of value, like it's not that I reject the labour theory of value, I think it's a crap name for value theory that Marx never called the labour theory of value. Right. So you, if you look at Marx's work, he doesn't call his work the labour theory of value, he talks about a law of value. And it's more appropriate, I think, to call it a value theory of labour rather than a labour theory of value. Because <coughs> what it's about is how our work takes a social existence via commodities in the form of money, right? And that, for him, is the major fetter that is really creating crisis. Um, So I think the other point to say as well on this too is just because Marx develops a theory of crisis doesn't mean that is the total potential crises that capital might undergo, right? If there was a... You know, ageing population might genuinely be a problem for capital. You know, if there's a declining amount of workers you can employ, that would be a problem for capital. Um, If suddenly we ran out of all energy production, that would be a problem for capital. Perhaps financial speculation can set off other things, you know? It's like there'd be other points you can have breaks. What Marx is doing, I think, this is important. Maybe I didn't say it before. Like, he's creating a model of capitalism in laboratory conditions, right? If it existed in a vacuum, this is a direction it will inherently go. Capitalism in reality could go a whole different range, you know, perhaps. And we'd have to try to explain that. And it's obvious from Marx's work, he didn't go, labour theory of value, 
Oh, it didn't go declining rate of profit. I'm done. Like he kept on reading and kept on researching. And part of the mega people who look at the mega, so that's these combined works or 26 or whatever volumes, say that he got really interested more in America than England because his entire work had assumed England was the pure model of capital. He's like, maybe something's happening in the United States and maybe this is going to affect what's going on. Does that in some ways answer your part of your question? Or just yeah, it? but I guess not as much the underconsumption stuff, but is the, is the where, where is crisis situated, I guess everywhere is what you're yeah. saying, as opposed to the, the Marxist interpretation or the, the school around Marx that says it's in production. Can I, can I speak to that? Because I think um, with the decline of the left, there's been an attempt by some people... Um, Marxists who have embedded down in academia to defend Marxism against neoclassical economics and other... And neoclassical economics was an empirical push, which said if you can't put it into a mathematical model, then it's not real economics, right? And there has been a reaction in Marxism as well to prove that the falling rate of profit is an empirically um, proven phenomenon. And I think this is what why your talk was so great, because it's actually bringing back to... Marx's work, he's not, he's not trying to be a bourgeois economist, right? He's not trying to say the world can be explained through mathematical models, it's linking the power of everyday people to those bigger concepts and how it is that humans make up the economy and the organisation between humans that does that. So um, I think that speaks to one of my bugbears about um, certain strains of Marxist economics is it's an, it's an attempt, really what, what we can do with crisis theory that Marx gives us is we can identify the inherent tendencies and therefore speak to people about their power, right, and how they can change society, rather than looking back over our shoulder and saying, yeah, see, we told you so. And that's, that is the way that people do apply Marxist <coughs> crisis theory, which is totally it's, it's not helpful. Yeah, what's, the point, what's the point of doing that? Yeah, right? exactly, right? Um, so I think, for me, where I've, I've started with the Marxist space and I've gone on to study other economics after, and I think Marxism provides the best space to do that, because you understand where power is and how, how power functions. But there are other markers in macroeconomics, of which some come from Keynes and lots of other economists that have came, come after Marx, that reflect our contemporary economy and give us good markers for understanding where crisis might come. So rather than it being a diagnostic, okay, it's because of capitalism, it actually gives us an, an ability to look for those markers and be like, actually, we think something's happening here and there's something that can be done. And, you know, IMF papers are sometimes yeah. fine places to find that stuff. Um, if workers' wages are pushed so far down, they can't buy shit. And that's a, that's a crisis for capitalism yeah. at the moment, so. In that, looking at other traditions, Ali, like um, a guy's work I really like is this guy called Riccardo Bellifiore, who's a really interesting guy because he came from the Italian workers' tradition, he's engaged in this German value form tradition, but he's like, you need to look out, out, out where to look at, for finance. So he's, he says, you know, look at Minsky, who I don't know, like, like Minsky has things to say about how finance operates that is more developed than the notes, the fragmentary notes of Marx's empirical works. And I can tell you that now that I have the manuscript, pages of that are just tables of transactions, right? <laughs> That's the note-level stage it was. And even if you look at the language of Capital Volume 1 compared to the language in Volume 3, you can tell this is not a book ready for publication. This is someone writing to themselves. So it can't... This I don't think we should be threatened by looking at other theories. There's um, Christian Marazzi, who I really like, who went... You know, he draws from Keynes on finance to talk about herd-like patterns of behaviour, right? Like, to show that financial markets, like, really, um, you know, behave in similar ways, but has a very well-developed Marxist grounding as well. 
So I think like why I'm why I was part of like don't go from Keynes to get under consumptionism. There's lots of people outside of Marx that are talking about finance that people who have a foot in Marx should read, you know, and it probably makes it. And there's other people more in like la, uh, people in the Marxist tradition who are doing this work too.